Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. So right now, the market action is posing a few questions to people. First of all, how much were U.S. stocks baking in the likelihood of a pretty substantial tax cuts for big corporations? And second, what the response is and what the new revised outlook is based on the tax plans that we have seen out of the House and Senate. Here to answer those questions is Nick Colas, co-founder of Data Trek Research in New York City. Uh, Nick, we love speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're Absolutely. also a Bloomberg prophet. So at the uh, back in September, you noted that there did seem to be quite a bit of hope priced into U.S. stocks based on a tax plan. What's your sense now, based on what we've received, do you think that U.S. stocks should fall or should rise based on the tax plans that we've seen? It's certainly clear that particularly small cap stocks, the Russell and the S&P 600, do definitely anticipate some kind of tax relief. And that's the segment of the market that, for which it really matters most. Larger companies tend to have some tax shields overseas. The smaller ones don't. And right after the election, small caps rallied 20%, and they haven't given any of that back. So it's clear that there is some anticipation for tax relief, particularly in the small cap sector. Did they get it? Will they get it? They should get it, yes. There seems to be there's no excuse for them not to get it. You have a Republican House, Senate, and President, and that is the party of tax reform, and therefore, if they can't do it now, they can never right, do it. Right, but we've gotten very different plans out of the House and the Senate. Uh, there's a lot of lack of coherence there with respect to even when the timing is of the implementation. Based on that, you still think that we're going to get something and it's going to help the small cap stocks enough to, to prevent a retracement? It does feel that way. You're absolutely right. This is Washington. And depending on Washington for an investment catalyst is an exercise in patience at best. And so you should get it. Will you get it by Christmas? I don't know. It's probably 50-50. But you should get it sometime before the midterm elections because it is a really critical issue going into midterms. How is this a more critical situation than the national debt or the inability of the federal government to balance the budget? Wow. A powerful question. Well, because, you know, this is the big sticking point with many of the Republicans that are going to be needed to vote yes on this to get this passed. And, you know, we go through these cycles where everybody kind of talks about the ominous federal debt and the national debt. And then it just disappears. And I'm wondering how, particularly at a time when the economy maybe not doing great, but it's not doing you know awful. Why do we need this? Well, politically, obviously, Congress will feel they need it going into midterm elections with a controversial president. They've got to show their electorates a win. And if the win means lowering their taxes, that might matter more to midterms than the longer term, even more important issues of deficit uh, and the total deficit, as you mentioned. So to me, it's a political calculus that basically says, okay, we have some headwinds because of the president. We need to score a win for our constituents. So let's say no tax plan gets passed. How much should small cap stocks sell off? 
you know, they already have fairly high valuations, 22 to 24 times next year's earnings versus 18 for the S&P. So they're rich, pretty rich. And even if they grow earnings 15%, you still expect to see at least a 10% retracement just to hold their PE multiples relatively constant at these high levels. The offsetting factor could be Q4 in 2018 earnings growth. We're looking for 10, 11% growth in the fourth quarter, up from roughly 5% this quarter. So we are getting some earnings acceleration, but it's probably not going to be enough to offset the ding from still having to pay the 35% tax rate. Nick, we're getting a little bit of a sell-off in the bond market today. Looking at the long end, particularly, you're seeing the 10-year down 10, 30 seconds. We've got a yield there of 2.37%, the long bond at 2.86%. Let's say this tax cut or reform goes through, we get something. What do you think that does to the bond market? You know, it's, a, it's fascinating because the sell-off yesterday was attributed to this delay in the corporate tax rate, and yet yields backed up. You wouldn't expect to see that. Yields should go down because lower growth, therefore lower chance for inflation. So I'm somewhat skeptical on the notion that the choppiness we're seeing right now in stocks is even related to the tax issue because none of the other markets confirm it. As far as what will happen next year, we're looking for the 10-year to go to roughly 3% next year in a steepening curve. I mean, the yield curve right now has been scary. It acts like a a souffle that got shocked out of the oven. It's flattened like an absolute pancake. And that's worrisome because the steeper the yield curve, the more chance we have for the bond market anticipating growth. And right now the bond market's saying the short end's going up and the long end's not. We do need to see the back end go up in yield relatively soon to confirm all these anticipations for growth and the tax plan. Well, I mean, just taking the bond market side for a minute, even the tax plans that have been released so far, economists don't think that they're going to that it would actually materially boost growth over the short term or the long term. Maybe they're talking less than a half a percentage point to the GDP. So I'm just wondering, you know, where you're where you're getting your optimism. Well, the trouble with doing the analysis on tax cuts through history is we don't have a lot of examples, particularly in the U.S. The last major tax reform was in the 1980s. So it's hard to look at a back test of this kind of cause and effect and say definitively it does or it doesn't. The best math I've seen is it may not cause immediate growth, but it does cause a a pickup in investment because corporations now feel their tax situation is more understood, more level. And right now, I'm worried that this thing drags on so long that corporations say, let's hold off on hiring. Let's hold off on investing until the tax plan gets fixed. And that could put a damper in particularly Q1 of next year if we don't see that come through. But over the medium term, it should have even natural rebound effect as the issue is settled and corporations know how to plan. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Appreciate it. As always, Nick Collis is the co-founder of Datatrek Research. He's also a Bloomberg prophet, uh, one of the many that write for Bloomberg and offer actionable ideas about investments. And uh, once again, congratulations, though, on the founding of Datatrek Research. Thank you. This week, we've been getting more information about the GOP tax cut plan. Right now in focus is the Senate. Here for a quick update on what we should be looking for uh, with the Senate bill in particular, Laura Davison joins us. She's a Bloomberg tax reporter. Uh, Laura, is this is this really the most important thing to be watching the Senate? And if so, what, what should we be watching? So 
history shows that any tax bill will probably look more like what the Senate puts together than what the House is. So while the House is moving first and is a little bit further along in their process, really this week, watch the Senate as they go through the, the markup where they formally consider, see what amendments are added, see what gets taken out. That'll really give you a sense of, of the direction that the bill might go. Uh, two things that'll really be uh, under the microscope this week is, one, uh, the delay on this corporate tax rate. Right now, the Senate bill has it starting in 2019, going to 20%. Uh, that's sort of a big change of what Republicans have said they want this big tax cut and they want it now. Uh, the other thing is for so-called pass-through businesses. So these are LLCs, partnerships, uh, S-corporations. And basically, uh, the 25% business rate that's been talked about, that is sort of effectively out the window in the, in the Senate plan. Uh, they basically have sort of this complicated formula. You get this deduction and then you tie it to what your individual tax rate is. Uh, this is sort of a whole new thing that was unveiled and people are still kind of combing through and tax lawyers are seeing what this would mean. Uh, but this is uh, really a a departure from from what we were thinking that could maybe be in the plan, you know, just a couple weeks ago. Laura Davison, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will be catching up with you again next week. Laura Davison, Bloomberg tax reporter uh, coming to us right now uh, to weigh in on what we've seen so far is Chris Mackey, founder of Solutionomics based in New York. Chris, you spent uh, quite a bit of time on Capitol Hill in recent weeks. What's the what's the sort of impression from congressmen who are involved in these negotiations right now? Do they feel pretty confident they're going to get something done? Well, it's great to be with you. I don't know if I'd call it confidence as much as need, uh, bordering on desperation. Um, as we all know, there's been some legis- legislative challenges, and that's creating a real sense of urgency. So I, I can't say it's confidence. Uh, it's definitely more of a need. Now, now the issue is you've got a yawning gap between Republican optimism about what a tax bill would do and Democratic skepticism. That's going to be a fundamental issue that will need to be corrected if we want to get permanent tax cuts. They could put something through temporary, but if we want permanent, you got to bridge the gap. You know, I'm just trying to put this together with the mission of uh, Solutionomics, because you're talking about reality-based economic and global trade strategies. It has supposedly nothing to do with politics. You're looking for a solution to the issues of economic inefficiency, uh, what you describe as a kind of broken tax system. What if you got a clean sheet— what would be maybe the one or two things that you would like to be able to say to the, you know, six or seven hundred odd people plus their minions that these are the things that are the most important in a nonpartisan approach? Certainly. Earned corporate tax cuts, the concept of ROI. I come from the world of business and finance. The way you can get something done politically, if there's a will by the politicians, is to set aside the politics and use an objective metric like return on investment. Instead of having the unconditional tax cuts that we have today, which leads the Democrats and the Republicans debating about what the results will be, come up with a concept from the world of M&A, an earned approach. So the earned corporate tax cut, that's the number one thing I would do. How would Just give an example of how that would work with a corporation. Absolutely. So the first thing would be corporations that are increasing jobs in America they get a tax cut. Companies that don't, won't. Now, what this does, and this is the exciting part, it actually reduces the tax cuts for companies not creating jobs, which means more tax cuts for companies creating jobs. So you actually increase, you accelerate the incentive of the tax cuts. 
So far, based on what you've seen, and as Laura was saying, the Senate bill is the one to really watch because history shows that will be closer to what it will look like. What do you think it will do uh, with respect to growth? Well, as, as it stands right now, if they passed it tomorrow, the only guarantee that we have is an increase in the debt. Now, let's be clear here. Debt isn't necessarily a bad thing all the time. It depends on when and what you're getting in return. The concern is that we're locking in the debt without the certainty of a return. So again, the better approach is to say, look, we're willing to take on some of the debt if the country decides they're willing to do that, as long as we're getting a guarantee of the higher wages and a guarantee of the stronger job growth. So that's why you need an earnout concept. Well, Chris, uh, do you get an audience when you go down to Washington? I mean, do they you know, let you into the office, they give you a cup of coffee, and you kind of give your speech, and then they kind of nod their heads, and they say, great, and then they go right back to work. This seems pretty straightforward. It, it, it doesn't seem like anyone could call you out as being uh, you know, anti-growth or anti-fairness and all that. What kind of reception do you get? Well, I tell you what, it's um, the left and the right, uh, especially on, you know, with the various media, agree with the concepts. And in Congress, it's gaining traction. If you look at yesterday, Senator Mark Warner was just giving a talk with, you know, one of your colleagues, uh, Kevin Cirilli, and he was saying, look, there's no conditions on the repatriation. We need that. There, so we are getting the traction. We are getting the meetings. And to the point where they're saying, okay, can you flush this out for us? Can you get us more detail? How can you operationalize that? Which led to something we call the corporate tax cut scorecard. All right. So um, as, as the bill stands right now, though, you're concerned that it piles mm -hmm. on debt without a commensurate uh, kind of boost. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Uh, my question is, how much time do they have to reconsider how what they've drafted, considering the fact that we have a very tight deadline before the end of the year? And as you were saying, there's a feeling of desperation of wanting to get something done. Well, the they have they could take all the time that they need to come up with the tax policy that would have the greatest economic impact. But that's just on the economic side. You got to take the politics into account. So the House is going to vote on their bill under closed rule next week, which means no amendments. The Senate, you know, they're filing amendments this weekend. They're going to vote on it next week. Um, it's just a matter of whether or not the process can be slowed down. If the American people and if small businesses understood that there will be companies that will be sending jobs overseas and firing Americans that will get tax cuts, that could motivate the public to say, look, we're all for tax reform, but not this tax reform. Well, maybe you got to start a hashtag campaign or something like that. I mean, this idea of the corporate tax cut scorecard, we've got an example of it here. Seems pretty straightforward. Pim, hashtag ROI tax plan, please consider. I love it. Yeah, all right. We got, we got him on board. All right. That wasn't hard. I think that was the easy part. Thanks very much. Chris Mackey is the founder of Solutionomics and uh, really well done on the corporate tax cut scorecard. It's a very interesting idea.
New rules. New rules in China unveiled at the government briefing today, giving global financial companies access to the world's second largest economy. Here to tell us more about it is Tom Orlick, chief Asia economist for Bloomberg, and he joins us from Beijing. Tom, thank you very much for being with us and uh, staying up for us so, so late in the day. Tell us about this move and what it really means for the asset managers and the financial companies that are doing business or want to do business in China. Well, it's an extremely striking announcement, Pim. Uh, It comes at the end of Donald Trump's two-day meeting with China's President Xi Jinping. Uh, Will legitimately be be presented as a pretty substantial outcome of that summit. I think uh, for China and for for the U.S., there's a win on both sides. For China, they've got a highly indebted economy, overstretched banks, banks which need a capital infusion, banks which need an infusion of expertise in how to manage risk. Uh, On the U.S. side, you've got banks, you've got Wall Street, who are hungry to come into China as the world's second largest financial market, the world's fastest growing financial market. This opening move gives something to both sides. Well, Tom, it certainly is uh, an opportunity for banks globally that have been wanting to get into China. I wonder, are people talking at all about the fact that this is happening at a later stage of China's credit cycle and at a time when non-performing loan uh, volumes are spiking? Yeah, I think that's right, Lisa. I mean, foreign banks are being invited to the end of China's credit party, not the beginning. We've had a tumultuous um, eight, nine-year credit cycle in China. The debt-to-GDP ratio has blown up. Bank balance sheets have blown up. The official data doesn't show many bad loans, but most people think they're out there. China Foreign banks are not being invited in at the best time. Well, but that's why, they're in, that's why they're being invited well, in. But China's I want to... Uh, problem... Well, Sorry, carry on. No, no, no. I, I, but, the re- but the reason why I'm asking this is because a lot of people used to say, you know, if China blows up, it's going to be a contained risk. It's not going to affect the rest of the financial system because of how insular the market is. Does this increase sort of the global risk to the financial system? Well, um, I think you can look at it two ways. Um, so if China blew up right now, yes, the financial system is contained. So the direct blow to your J.P. Morgans, your Bank of Americas, um, your Deutsche Banks will be limited because they have a limited presence. At the same time, if China blew up, China is the second largest economy in the world. It's the biggest trading nation in the world. So all of the other countries which these U.S. and European banks operated in would take a significant hit. And so the global financial system would take a hit through the real economy. Now, what you're going to see now is the world financial markets, the global financial institutions moving into China, hopefully to help up clear to help clear up some of the problems, some of the mess in China's financial system. That's a positive. At the same time, it's going to mean the mechanisms for contagion, the networks which connect China's financial system with the rest of the world are going to be much stronger, much more integrated. Hey, Tom, but haven't we kind of been here before? Because I recall that, you know, remember HSBC Holdings, Citibank, Standard Chartered, Bank of East Asia. I mean, they all opened mainland uh, subsidiary, mainland Chinese subsidiaries back in 2007, uh, as well as other foreign uh, financial institutions. What happened? 
Yes, so you're right. This is not the first time we've been here. Uh, We had big foreign banks buying a stake in Chinese banks, HSBC, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, Bank of America bought big stakes, minority stakes in some of the big Chinese banks. HSBC and Standard Chartered have set up very limited branch networks on the Chinese mainland. That was a little bang. I think what we're seeing today is a big bang. This isn't foreign banks being allowed to come in and take minority stakes and open a few branches. This is foreign banks being allowed to come in and take over Chinese banks. Okay, but is this... But Tom, does this mean that, that foreign banks now they can come in and rather than having small losses, now they can have big losses? Well, I think the hope is that they can help recapitalize, deal with some of the stresses in China's financial system, and then position them for growth. But yes, I mean, opportunity and risk are flip sides of the same same coin. Tom, do you have a sense of what the demand is like from big global financial firms to rush into China at this point? Will there be a wave of banks flooding into China? I think if we look at the way the markets reacted to this, today, to this today, there's been a pretty muted reaction. We didn't see a big move in equity markets. We didn't see a big move in the CNY. And I think that's because there's a sort of widespread recognition that on both sides, whilst this is a big bang announcement, the progress is going to be incremental. It's going to be gradual. China doesn't want to open up immediately to a surge of um, inbound investment in the financial sector. Foreign firms are going to tread pretty cautiously as well. There's political risk. There's credit risk. There's risk around whether money that comes in is going to be able to get out. Foreign firms are going to be wanting to kick the tires pretty thoroughly uh, before they make substantial plays in the China market. Tom Orlick, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's late for you there. Tom Orlick, Chief Asia Economist for Bloomberg, talking about China removing limits on foreign ownership of Chinese banks and asset managers really coming at an interesting time, given where China is in the credit cycle. Time to bring in Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist and uh, blogger at MLive. Go on the Bloomberg. Remember to send Dave an email and sign up for his daily free email newsletter. Go ahead. Just send it to dwilson at Bloomberg.net. Become a smarter investor. And also joining us is Lindsay Rupp, our specialty retail reporter for Bloomberg. Because, of course, we're going to talk about JCPenney, Jacques Penny. The share is up more than 16.5% right now. Dave Wilson, what is uh, sort of following? Uh, what is What are you following this morning? Because I was looking again today at Roe. The follow-on to yesterday's move, stock of Roku up 11.5% today. Well, you know, there are all these potential deals out there that are kind of swirling around. And it seems like, you know, maybe because it's a Friday that and, and you've got trading uh, curtailed a bit because of the Veterans Day holiday, that, uh, you know, people are kind of cycling back to those deals. You know, 21st Century Fox shares up two and a half, three percent, depending on which class you look at. They have two, both in the S&P 500. And you've had CNBC report that a deal between the film and television company and Disney has not been abandoned. So that's still kind of kicking around. Uh, We're seeing a bit of a rebound in Time Warner. Of course, there's all the speculation we've had in the last couple of days that uh, AT&T might have to sell CNN to get the deal through that it's working on. Uh, Time Warner's up 2.7%, AT&T also higher. 
Uh, you've got uh, the shopping mall owner. But didn't Mace. hang on. But didn't Stephen? What didn't Randall Stevenson say? I mean, he was at a, a conference yesterday. He said that he has no interest. He said it would make no sense to be selling CNN as part of the takeover for Time Warner. Indeed, he did. I mean, say not that, that that's you know right. uh, set in stone anyway, yeah. but that's well, what he said. He did say that, but it, it's just more a matter of you know you're getting a bit of a rebound in the shares. Uh, you've got uh, Mace Rich, as mentioned, the mall owner, uh, third points Dan Loeb uh, with a stake. And who knows where we go from there. But nonetheless, the stock's up 1.5%. And then the most intriguing one, perhaps, today, which sort of leads us where we're going next, is Macy's. Yeah. This report out of Deal Reporter that, you know, if Amazon.com is going to go after a department store chain, maybe they don't want to focus on Kohl's, even though they have a partnership agreement with them. Maybe they would be better off taking a look at Macy's. And that yeah. stock's up 2.2% at the moment. Well, Macy's and, of course, JCPenney shares almost... Uh, 18% up. And Lindsay Rupp here is joining us, uh, specialty retail reporter for Bloomberg. Lindsay, you know, here's the question that I have for you. JCPenney reported better than expected earnings, actual sales growth in uh, same stores uh, quarter over quarter. Is this just a blip before a bigger downturn? Or is there something that JCPenney is doing that's materially changing the company's outlook? Well, so I hate to be the uh, bearer of um, not bad news, but this sales pop came for them on the back of a liquidation. They had to get rid of a bunch of inventory that wasn't working in women's apparel. I mean, that's not a good thing. It, 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 they had a loss this quarter because they had to liquidate all this inventory. And but it's better to, than keeping it around and not having it sold. That's true. But they also had to liquidate inventory in the second quarter, too, because they were closing a lot of stores. So JCPenney is in a time of intense transition. And one good thing they did say is that, you know, they're, they're putting appliances into their stores, right? Trying to take share from Sears as Sears continues its slow circle toward whatever its inevitable end will be. And, uh, you know, they said their their comparable sales and appliances were up 30%. And, you know, the appliance sales more than doubled from last year. But that's a new business for them. So we don't really know. I mean, that's a small base we're assuming that it's coming off of. So I think there are some green shoots. I think they're trying the right things. Um, but I am surprised at the extent of this rally. Stock is up more than 17.5% right now. I remember speaking about this with Punam Goyal, our Bloomberg intelligence expert when it comes to retail. We were speaking about it in October when the company talked about that big inventory liquidation. Is there a, a sort of factor about all of the real estate that the company, you know, still currently owns because they're still closing stores. They are still closing stores. And I mean, I think we'll see every department store and, and retailer reevaluate its fleet after the holidays, um, because I, I don't think anyone's figured out what the right answer is in terms of how many stores do you need to have? How do you optimize uh, your stores and your online business? You know, if people are going to shift online, how many stores do you really need? But if you want to use them as fulfillment, it's, it's like a it's a constantly fluctuating equation. And the other thing that I was missing out of this JCPenney report is is any kind of discussion about holiday. Um, there there wasn't really any forecast in, about holiday. They they're excited about what they're doing in Sephora and and toys and appliances, but. They need a good holiday. That's going to be really important for them. Well, Dave, come on in here, because I'm curious, first of all, whether the optimism that we're seeing in JCPenney and Macy's is spreading into other uh, retailers. Uh, also, you know, how, how long lasting this could be based on some technical aspects? Well, you've got Kohl's up 3.5%, so that's another plus. Nordstrom, though, which had numbers out late yesterday, uh, down one and a quarter percent at the moment. Uh, they didn't come in so well. But if you want to understand why you've got a pop in penny, you have to go straight to short interest. The 
percentage of shares available for trading uh, that had been borrowed and sold in anticipation that the price would fall. And when you run those numbers, you see that short interest in penny, at least according to our figures, 50.5% of the float. That is one of the 10 biggest percentages for any company on the New York Stock Exchange. So you get any piece of good news, you're going to have these short sellers out there that are going to have to buy what they previously sold. In other words, cover their shorts. And so you get these sort of extreme moves, even though what's really happening at the company may not justify them. I'm trying to think. Cover my cover their shorts at J.C. Penny. Oh no! Oh no! I won't go there. Please. But I will tell you that Can- <laughs> not this time of year anyway. It's right. long pants. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of which, Canada Goose. We spoke about it yesterday. The maker of those parkas and down jackets and so on. Stock is up another three percent today. Thanks very much, Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Commerce. Send him an email: dwilsonbloomberg.net. Sign up for his daily free email newsletter. And our thanks to Lindsay Rupp, specialty retailer reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.